The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things... To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We always take a few moments for silent prayer. So if we need to use the option of 1 John 1.9, then we have that opportunity in the privacy of our priesthood to confess any sins so that we can be instantly forgiven, uh, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and resume our spiritual advance, which the Scripture calls abiding in Christ. Walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege and opportunity to study your word, that we learn of things that eye cannot see and ear is not heard, because in, it, in your word you reveal to us that our life here on the earth has a uh, dimension, a spiritual dimension that plugs into a tremendous unseen conflict that began in eternity past and extends into the future that involves uh, beings, spirit beings that we cannot see, that we are not aware of, and that our very purpose in life is intimately tied to that conflict. Now, Father, as we continue our study of the angelic conflict and spiritual warfare, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that we might be challenged to apply them in our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage, or our starting point, you don't need to turn there, is 1 John 2. We have come to the section starting in verse 14 where John is addressing the adolescent believer. And when he addresses the adolescent believer in verse 13, he says, I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. He expands on that in verse 14b by saying, I have written to you young men because you are strong. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, we have just done a cursory exegesis of that, but we have seen that the context of his comments to the young men, the adolescent believer, are in the framework of certain victories that they have achieved in what we call the angelic conflict, in spiritual warfare, the, the 
comments that he makes, the positive comments of 14b, plus his warnings and prohibition in 15 and uh, 15 through 17 related to the cosmic system, indicate something that should be clear to us. Somebody commented that they, last week that they had never really thought about that, but for John to be able to say what John is saying to them in these verses presupposes that they understand the angelic conflict. If you do not understand what is going on in the spiritual realm in terms of Satan's rebellion against God, in terms of the fact that Satan is going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, if you don't understand the believer's role in spiritual warfare and the angelic conflict to stand firm in the armor of God, then this doesn't make a lot of sense. If we don't understand that that what the Bible means by the world system or uh, worldliness is a way of thinking, uh, a way of thinking that is contrary to God's way of thinking, and that Satan is constantly promoting various philosophies, various religions, some more sophisticated, others less sophisticated, some just simply based on rationalization, as simple as, well, how can this be wrong? Everybody's doing it, to uh, much more sophisticated concepts like postmodern philosophy or existentialism. All of those are different manifestations of the cosmic system. So in order to understand this, we have to stop and do some background study. Just as John had taught his congregation about the angelic conflict, so it's time for us to take uh, some time to focus on the angelic conflict. So we will uh, begin with where we started last time, just by way of review, cover the first uh, point or two, and then we will move on. Our first point was to define the angelic conflict. The angelic conflict is the invisible spiritual warfare between the forces of Satan and the forces of God. The invisible spiritual warfare between the forces of Satan and the forces of God. This is, uh, continues in human history, and human history is one facet of this ongoing conflict. It still takes place in the heavenlies, and we are witnesses. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are witnesses in that overall angelic conflict. And that relates to the purposes for human history, why God created uh, mankind and our purpose is intimately connected with demonstrating some things about God's character, about His grace, about the kind of character that is necessary for a creature to have in order to be successful, to demonstrate that a creature cannot achieve any degree of success by operating on arrogance, by operating apart from 100% dependence upon God and upon His power and upon His, His thinking. So that was point number one, our definition of the angelic conflict. Point number two was to uh, briefly go over the course of the angelic conflict. And there we saw that in eternity past, God created the angels. Now if we set this on a timeline up on the overhead, we know that we'll, we'll put a solid line here with a clear demarcation. That is human history. The history of this present earth and, and uh, universe. And it begins in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 and ends in Revelation uh, chapter 
uh, 20, 21, where we have the new heavens and the new earth. Sometime prior to Genesis 1-2, God created the angels. God created the angels, and there were various classifications of angels. The term angel comes from the Greek word angelos. Whenever you have a double gamma like that, it should be translated A-N-G-E-L-O-S. Angelos are the uh, Hebrew word malachim. Malachim, M-A-L-A-K-I-M. Both of these words mean messenger. And that indicates their function, that they were designed by God to carry out and implement certain aspects of His plan and God's program. The term angel we use as sort of an overall category to describe all of these spirit beings. What we know about them is that that they are not material, they are immaterial. They seem to be comprised of light, and it appears that they are able to change their appearance and change their bodily structure. For example, in Genesis chapter 18 and 19, where you have uh, God coming to speak with Abram, and he is accompanied by two angels. And the angels are, and God are welcomed by Abraham into his tent, and they come in and they sit down and they dine with Abraham and says they have the appearance of a man. And so they, they talk with Abraham in the languages of a man. They don't have a distinct language or never appears to be so anywhere in Scripture. No indication angels have a unique language. They, uh, when Paul uses the phrase languages of men and of angels, he is using hyperbole there. He's talking about any possible conceivable language. He's not indicating... Uh, it's a hypothetical statement, and he is not indicating that there are necessarily angelic languages. So you just can't get that out of that particular passage. Some people try to, but usually I find that there are people who are not very biblically literate. Um, there are The angels appear physically to be able to do all of the things that any human being can do. They eat, they drink. Yet they appear as a man, so they have a physical bodily structure. But that's not how angels are in their primary, primary existence. So apparently they're able to transform their bodies into, into various material shapes and function. When God created the angels, there are different classifications of angels. The first are cherubs. Uh, we call them cherubim, but that's a transliteration of the Hebrew, the I-M ending, is a plural ending, so it's best trans, if you're going to just translate it or bring it over into English, you ought to say cherub or cherubs. Uh, cherubs are mentioned in several important contexts. The first mention of a cherub is in Genesis 3.24, after Adam and the woman are expelled from the garden. There we're told, so he, that is God, drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim, the cherubs. So it indicates that there are more than one stationed there. And the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So they're associated with guarding the uh, access to the presence of God, guard, because God dwelt in Eden, continued to have an abode in Eden in the uh, 
uh, antediluvian period, that is the period before the flood. Ante means prior to or before diluvian flood. So in the antediluvian civilization, God still had a presence or an abode on the earth in Eden. So the cherubs are associated with his presence. The next time we see cherubs mentioned are in Exodus 25:18 through 20, where they are mentioned in connection with the worship of God, and they are there are two images of cherubs placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant, looking at the mercy seat, and there they represent the holiness and the righteousness of God. And then again in Exodus 25 verse 22. Uh, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 26, verse 1, Exodus 26, 31, Exodus 36, 8, and 35. Cherubs were to be embroidered. Representations of cherubs were embroidered on the veil that separated the holy, uh, holy place from the holy of holies and upon various curtains in the tabernacle. The most distinct description of cherubs is found in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 through 28. Now, one of the reasons we're spending some time on cherubs is because Satan was created a cherub initially. In Ezekiel 1, 4 through 28, we're told that each of these creatures had four faces and four wings, and their overall appearance could be likened to a man. So apparently there was a similarity in their physical structure to a man. It was... um, not to be confused, as some scholars have suggested, with the mythological winged sphinx of the Assyrian type of lion, where you have the body of a lion and the head of a man, or the, or the sphinx of Egypt. This was a creature that had four faces. The face, one was the face of a man, the second the face of a lion, and the third the face of an eagle. So you have a man a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And that is very similar to the third category, which are called uh, living creatures in Revelation 4, 6 through 9. We'll look at that in just a minute. But I just want you to remember those four, that it's similar to uh, another category that may may not be a category. There's a lot of uh, speculation, confusion because of the similarities there. The function of cherubs seem to be that they are associated with the glory of God. They're always associated with the glory of God, with His righteousness, and with His justice, and with His very presence. Cherubs are right in His presence. In Psalm 81, it says Psalm 80, verse 1, we're told that God is enthroned above the cherubs. God is enthroned above the cherubs, and the picture is that as these cherubs bow down and their wings come over, that the throne of God rests upon the wings of the cherubs. And so that again brings up the same image that we have of the two cherubs on the mercy seat who face each other and look down upon the mercy seat and their wings come over and touch. So cherubs uh, are presented, for example, in Ezekiel 1, 4-28, was having four faces, and four wings. Now remember that. Category two are the seraphs, or the seraphim. The seraphs are the seraphim from the Hebrew word seraph, meaning burning ones. And many think that this means that they have a consuming devotion to God, and, and they are consumed by the praise of God because that seems to be their 
their function. The seraphs have six wings. Uh, where the picture of them comes from uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, we, we uh, read in the year of King Uzziah, uh, starting in Isaiah 6, 1, the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the suggestion is that the covering of their face indicated that they're in the presence of God and even these exalted beings who are created by God and serve in the throne room of God must still cover their face because the glory of God is too great for even them to behold. They cannot look upon the Shekinah glory of God. And with two of their wings, they cover their feet to symbolize their, their reverence for God. And with two of the wings, they fly, and that indicates the swiftness with which they execute the commands of God. So Isaiah 6, 2 say, states that seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, with two that he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So they too are associated with his glory. So the picture we have by comparing these passages is that you have the cherubs underneath supporting the throne of God and then the seraphs flying around singing the doxology to God. And then we have a third category mentioned in Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. So you might want to turn there, Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 9. Revelation 4, 6 through 9. We read, Before the throne there was a sea of glass. This is a picture of the throne room of heaven. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. That's very similar to the description of the cherubs in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now, in, in, in Ezekiel, this is the problem. In Ezekiel, you have one creature that has four faces, same faces, the, the, uh, the face of a man, the face of, a, of an ox or calf, the face of a lion, the face of an eagle. And here you have four living creatures, each with a different face. And then we read in verse 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings. So the six wings seems to suggest that they are seraphs as opposed to cherubs. Uh, The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So they seem to be functioning in the same way that the seraphs function. So apparently there is a a tremendous similarity between cherubs and seraphs. The distinction is the number of wings. And the seraphs are centered around worshiping God and carrying out judgment of God. For example, judgment has to do with purification. In the Isaiah 6 passage, the... um, When Isaiah looks upon God, he says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. 
Then in verse 6, one of the seraphs flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And in Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 7, and again in chapter 19, it is the seraph, these living creatures who carry out the judgments of God. So it seems best to conclude that the living creatures are probably seraphs, but I don't think we can be too dogmatic on that point because there are they could very well be a third classification of creature, of angelic creatures. So we have cherubs, seraphs, living creatures, and fourth, an archangel. There is only one archangel, one archangel, and that is Michael. Only two angels are named in the scriptures other than Lucifer, and that's Michael and Gabriel. There are, there are in, uh, some, in tradition, in some of the apocryphal books, mention of two or three other uh, angels, but in, in the books of the Scripture, there are only two that are mentioned. There are only two names that we know of. That is Michael, who is designated in Jude 9 as the archangel. And his function as the archangel seems to be twofold. Number one, he is given the responsibility of protecting Israel. He is given the primary responsibility of protecting Israel, so he seems to be the, uh, the general in command of the angelic army that protects the nation Israel. This is seen in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, and in verse 21. Daniel 13, 10, or excuse me, Daniel 10, 13 and 21, Daniel 12, verse 1, uh, in comparison with Jeremiah 37, where there is protection of Israel during the time of Jacob's trouble. So he is the commanding general of the angels in, in, in terms of their military function, especially in relationship to uh, Israel. And then he is involved in a conflict, for example, in Jude 9, in protecting the body of of Moses from some sort of assault by, by Lucifer. The, so we have the fir, cherubs, number one, number two, seraphs, number three, living creatures, number fourth, one archangel, and then fifth, one primary messenger. The overall uh, duty of Gabriel is to be a special messenger of God, specifically in, in uh, relation to communicating revelation about the uh, developing dispensations in God's plan for history. Gabriel's name means <clears throat> the mighty one of God. Uh, Gabriel means the mighty one of God, and, and he is used by God in Daniel 9.21 to uh, give revelation to Daniel about Daniel's dream of the 70 weeks and the outline of, of history for uh, Israel. In Luke 1.26, he is the one who announces the birth of the Savior. So he, he is associated with communicating revelation, especially the unfolding of God's plan and purposes for human history, but specifically to Israel and a Messiah. Okay, we have discussed four angels, four classifications of angels so far. Number one, the cherubs. Number two, the seraphs. Number three, the living creatures. And Revelation 4, 6 through 9. Number four, the archangel. And then number five, Gabriel. These are the, the five classifications or five different angels mentioned. But the highest of all the angels that, was, that were created was one designated as Lucifer. 
Now, the term Lucifer is not really found in the original uh, Hebrew. It comes from the King James Version translation of Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. And there we have the phrase, Halal ben Shahar. Halal ben Shahar literally means the shining one, the sun of the dawn. H-E-L-E-L-B-E-N-S-H-A-H-A-R. Halal ben Shahar literally means shining one, sun of the dawn, because the emphasis on light, Lucifer was used from the Latin root lux, meaning light. So that, that term was applied or, or, or is translated as Lucifer uh, coming from, I think it came from the uh, original LXX, the Septuagint, and was just brought over into the King James Version. But actually it is not a, Lucifer is not a uh, proper name mentioned here. It is, if we were going to be accurate, we would say his name is Halel ben Shahar, not Lucifer, but because Lucifer has been the accepted term and the translation uh, used, I will continue to refer to him as Lucifer to avoid uh, too much confusion. So Lucifer was the highest angel of all, and he was the most beautiful of all the angels, the most beautiful, the most intelligent, and advanced of all of the angels. Now we need to ask the question where we ended last time, when the angels were created. So we'll go back to our timeline. Let me pull this back. We look at our timeline and we see that the angels were all created at a point in time in eternity past. So we have the creation of the angels. And then Job chapter 38, uh, 7, we noted that the angels were present at the time of the original creation, that the angels were all present at the time of the original creation. In Job 38, 4, God is uh, having a one-sided conversation with Job to point out to Job the limitations of his knowledge. And God says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And the Hebrew word there is the word yasir, or yasid, which means a foundation. And it's used of a literal, physical foundation many places in the Scripture. And here what we have is the picture of the construction of a building. And so foundation here is not talking about the fact that God is just somehow throwing out the uh, basic uh, material elements for the, function, for the creation of the earth, but it's talking about laying its basic foundation and structure. And so the, the, the actual creation of the planet. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements? So we move beyond foundation to measurements. Or who stretched the line upon it? The idea of a, of a uh, construction engineer laying out the plumb lines and building the walls so it indicates the complete construction of the earth. On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? The whole image there is of the complete construction of the planet. When the morning stars sang together, morning stars being a figurative term for the angels, not literal stars, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So all the sons of God shouting for joy indicates that at the time of the creation 
of planet Earth, all of the angels were created and the fall had not yet occurred. There is no division among the angels. So the angels are created at this point and then the universe is created afterward. And that would relate to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where God created, which is simply a summary statement, that God created the heavens and the earth. There's no word for universe in Hebrew. You don't have that concept. You, all you can state is a what's called a merism. A merism is a figure of speech where you talk about two opposites, and by talking about the two opposites, you include everything in between. For example, it says in the Psalms, I meditated on thy word day and night. Day is one extreme, night's the other extreme. We put them together, day and night means continually. So it's a figurative way of speaking about the totality of something. So in, by using the term uh, heavens and earth, the writer is including all of the universe. So God creates space. Space is not, the universe is not infinite. There, there's an end to space out there somewhere. God creates the space-time continuum in Genesis 1 one and this is to be the inhabitation for the angels. And they have the earth. So all we can say for sure at the end of Genesis one one is that there's uh, the the space time universe and there's a planet Earth. Nothing else. The sun's not created yet, the, the moon, the stars, it's just hanging out there. And then there appears to be a major uh, time lapse between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, during which time there is the angelic revolt and the fall of Satan. Genesis 1-2 comes back with a disjunctive clause at the beginning. That's a contrast. But the earth, and it can be translated became, or the earth was, but became emphasizes it better, the earth became without form and void, that is tohu vabohu in the Hebrew, without form and void, darkness covered the face of the deep. Darkness, deep, and tohu vabohu all are used in Scripture. Everywhere else they're used in Scripture, they are a picture of the catastrophe caused by sin, that there's calamity, there's disorder, there is darkness now, there is uh, the salt sea is a picture of the of the uncontrolled, tumultuous ocean that is a picture of, the, uh, of evil and how it is uncontrolled and tumultuous. And everywhere else in the Scriptures, that portrays the consequence of evil. Then when you come to Revelation 21, there is no more darkness, there is no more salt sea, and of course there is perfect order, so you see that that is removed from the eternal kingdom. So the implication is that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. When He creates the angels in the universe initially, it's all light. And there, of course, would be perfect order, because God is a God of order, and God is perfect and can create nothing less than perfection. And then something happens by Genesis 1-2. And the implication is that the fall, occur, fall of the angels occurs here, the fall of Lucifer and Satan. You can't plug any kind of evolution there. You can't take uh, the geologic ages and plug them in there for a number of reasons, which I don't want to go into now. That, did, that idea did not come along until the early 19th century as a way of trying to compromise with evolution. But the idea that, you, that there was a time lapse between 1-1 and 1-2 goes back to at least the early Middle Ages, as far as I've been able to trace it, back to uh, Jewish rabbinical thinkers in about the 8th century. It may be much earlier than that. I haven't been able to document that. 
but at least to the 8th century, and it was viewed as the time in which Satan fell, that, there, that Satan had, has to have fallen before Genesis 1-2. So uh, what you will run into is people who will disagree with what I just presented. And they will say, oh, you just believe in the gap view. You know, which shows, because for the last 30 or 40 years, most creationists have waged a tremendous campaign, and legitimately so, against the, the gap theory, which, which I'm distinguishing from my view. The gap theory ram-crammed and jammed, you know, five million years of geologic evolution into this, this time lapse. I'm not saying that. that. That did not come along until the early 19th century. But for even John Milton in Paradise Lost held, a, held this identical view that I'm teaching. It's a very ancient view that there is a lapse between 1-1 and 1-2 during which time Satan fell. But that is not to be confused with the gap view. The gap view was, a, was created or originated in order to compromise with the scientific findings of the early 19th century. And at that time, they didn't think it was that big a deal because science was only coming up with, with an age for the universe of, of probably 30 or 40,000 uh, 40, years as opposed to the strict biblical view that had been held up to that time of only five, six, or 7,000 years. But now science is no longer talking about 40,000 years, are they? They're talking about 40 million years or 40 billion years. You know, it gets longer and longer and longer. So at the time this was originated, you had a much different context than today. So what I'm simply saying is the angels are created, then the universe, then that's Genesis 1-1, then there's the fall of Satan, and then Genesis 1-2 indicates the consequences. So let's take a look now at the fall of Satan per se and how that is described in the Scriptures. When the angels were first created, God created them through the Lord Jesus Christ, according to John 1.3 and Colossians 1.16, which says that all things were created uh, by Him and through Him. So, since God is perfect and cannot create anything less than perfection, He cannot be involved in the creation of evil. Habakkuk 1, verse 13. God cannot be created in the creation of evil. Thus, all the angels were originally created perfect, holy, and righteous. Now, in the New Testament, we're told that these angels rebelled against God, that approximately one-third of the angels uh, rebelled with Satan. That's in Revelation chapter 12, verse, Satan, um, verse 7. And that they were uh, assigned to the lake of fire as their destiny. Matthew 25, verse 41. So, if they've been condemned and they've been sentenced to the lake of fire... And that all happened before the creation of man. The question then is, well, well, why has that not occurred? And, of course, the conclusion that we will f discover is that the creation of man somehow is related as, a, as an exhibit in this trial of Satan, that Satan has somehow challenged the veracity of God's uh, conviction and said, you never gave me a chance, give me an opportunity to prove what I can do. And so God has created the human race as a test case to demonstrate uh, before Satan and all of the angels that the creature cannot function as the creator, that the creature must function in complete dependence upon the creator, exhibiting the values of the creator himself. Now, there are two passages that describe the fall of Satan, and they are being disputed today 
and uh, it has been typical in the last hundred years or so for liberal theologians to dispute these passages because, of course, liberals start from the presupposition that God has not revealed anything. Therefore, these are just human opinions and human ideas, and so therefore a lot of these stories are just uh, based on human myth. But in the last 20 years, sad to say, there have been numerous evangelical uh, scholars, even some conservative scholars at some of our conservative seminaries, who have begun to take the position that these verses do not, do not apply to Satan or the fall of Satan. And because that is uh, such a significant uh, change, we must look at that and understand it, because sooner or later you may be exposed to somebody who makes that claim. And so you need to be forearmed and, uh, forewarned and forearmed with the biblical arguments for why these passages must refer to the fall of, of Lucifer and the fall of Satan. First of all, a couple of comments are on, on the background of this. Up until the 19th century, up until about 100, 120 years ago, the personages described in these two passages in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 were identified with one of, there were three options. There were three options available. Option number one is that this was some sort of historical figure. Usually, the Isaiah passage was interpreted by Jews to relate to Nebuchadnezzar. They identified this with Nebuchadnezzar. It was identified with a historical figure. A second option is that it is a historical but future figure. And there is, I think there is a typological significance to this, but it's, it goes further than this. And that future figure would be the Antichrist as the ruler of Babylon. Remember Revelation 16 and 17, you have the future rise of Babylon. And I mentioned that on, on Wednesday night in our study of Daniel. And as we go through Daniel, we will come again to this subject of whether or not that is symbolic. See, the traditional view, one that you've probably been taught, one that I was taught for many years, both in seminary and in my upbringing and much of the reading I did, was that future Babylon uh, in Revelation 17, 16 and 17, is there's spiritual Babylon and economic Babylon, and that was just a metaphorical or allegorical reference to the revived Roman Empire. And yet, much work has been done in the last decade on, um, on this whole subject. And the indication is that, that the prophecies in uh, Jeremiah, prophecies in Isaiah 12, the, or Isaiah 13, that talk about the complete destruction of Babylon, never occurred in human history. That these, these chapters portray a time when Babylon would be so devastated and destroyed that no life at all could exist there. No human habitation would exist there. And yet, some work by a Dallas Seminary professor, a classmate of mine at one time, Charlie Dyer, wrote a book called The Rise of Babylon, came out right at the time of the Gulf War. And Charlie's been over to Babylon, modern-day Babylon, many times. Saddam Hussein is rebuilding it. Charlie demonstrated that there always has been 
uh, an Arab habitation or, or Bedouin villages on the ancient site of Babylon. It would never met the complete and total destruction as portrayed in Scripture. Therefore, if the Scriptures are true, that Babylon would be so devastated that no life could exist there at all, and that has never happened, then it must be fulfilled at some time in the future. Therefore, the conclusion is that these references to Babylon in Revelation are not a sort of an allegorical reference to the revived Roman Empire, but must be taken literally that somehow during the, the uh, tribulation, Babylon becomes a, uh, the headquarters for the Antichrist, and that it will become a political and economic center. Now we look at that and we say, well, how can that happen? And um, that's not a good question to ask because there are many things that are said to take place during the tribulation, such as there will be a tribulation temple on the, on the site of the Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock now stands. And we sit around and scratch our heads and say, how can the Jews ever get a temple on the Dome of the Rock, I mean on the, on the Temple Mount, because the Arabs will never allow them to tear down the Dome of the Rock or to allow an alternate site there. So obviously some things still have to happen or will happen during the initial stages of the tribulation, which will bring these things about. And they'll either happen during the first three and a half years of the tribulation or during an interim period between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. So the first option that has been offered for interpreting these figures is a historical figure such as Nebuchadnezzar. The second is the Antichrist. And the third, of course, is a position that we take, and that is that this is... uh, a picture of the fall of Satan himself. Now, in the late, middle to late 19th century, with the development of Protestant liberalism, a fourth view came along. And the fourth view sought to identify these passages with some Canaanite myth or some other pagan myth. And uh, this really isn't, but that that fits with their view that this is not divine revelation. This is just man's uh, attempts at explaining things. And so we can sort of reject the liberal view out of hand because it's not based on an understanding of uh, the Scripture as the divinely inspired Word of God. Now, if we are going, so, so basically what we're left with is it's either referring to a human figure historical in the past or historical in the future, or it's referring to Satan. Now, this presents several problems if we're going to identify the figure with a human being. Just as a side note, I've done a lot of study on this recently, trying to figure this out because this is a major issue. And many of the recent evangelical conservative commentaries uh, at least question, uh, they, they may still accept Ezekiel as referring to Satan, but they don't accept Isaiah as referring to Satan. But the problem is, once they exclude Satan as the, as the figure identified, they can't give any definite solution as to who these passage or t- passages are talking about. So once they say it's not Satan, they don't have a clue who it is, really. It could be Nebuchadnezzar, or maybe it's Hiram, king of Tyre, maybe it's somebody else. But it really doesn't fit anyone we know historically. So, so once they throw out Satan as the option, they're just left on a, on a sea of uh, uncertainty and subjectivity. The other problem that is left, if this is not talking about Satan, if, if Isaiah and Ezekiel 
are not talking about the origin of evil in the universe and the fall of Satan, then we don't have any place in the Bible that talks about the origin of evil. And that would leave us with the impression that evil is also eternal. And that would fit a dualistic view of the universe, and that is that good and evil have already existed. But the Bible presents evil as something that began in time. God is eternal. Draw a first line up here for God with an arrow on both ends indicating the eternality of God. God is righteous and God is just. And so His goodness extends for all time and it is not co-equal or co-extensive with evil. The biblical view of evil and sin is that evil begins at a particular point in time. Now, the reason I belabor this point is because one of the greatest problems you're ever going to run into that's going to really throw you for a loop someday is you're going to start witnessing to somebody and they're going to say, well, how in the world can you believe in a good God? I mean, just look at all of the horrors. And you may even be witnessing to a Jew. And they'll say, how can you believe in a good God that would let something like the Holocaust take place? Now, how are you going to handle that? Because they're going to be attacking your, our position as believers, believing in a good God and saying, well, if God is good and God is all-powerful and, and evil exists, either God isn't good because He lets evil exist, or God isn't all-powerful because He allows evil to exist and it seems to be out of control. And so the implication is that God can neither be good or all-powerful, so why believe in God? Now, what I like to do in a situation like that is just to, to reverse the argument on them. You know, just like a good, uh, a good judo hold is when you take the other person's momentum and then you use it against them and flip them. And that's exactly what happens here is because nobody else, I'm talking about Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam, nobody else can handle the problem of evil. They may be sitting there in their glass house throwing rocks at us, but they're living in a fragile glass house. And their glass house has no other option but to say that evil is natural and normal. Because Christianity claims that evil began at a point in time. God allowed it to come into existence. It is not eternal. And that eventually evil will be judged and evil will be separated and have an eternal destiny and be confined into the lake of fire, and then good goes to heaven, and so evil is restricted and punished and condemned in the lake of fire, and evil is normal, I mean, is not normal, it's abnormal, but God, God still controls it and controls its impact and will eventually restrict it. Any other view has to see evil as being part of the normal and natural processes. And if evil is normal and natural, then you can't say it's evil. Ultimately, if you push their argument far enough, the distinction between good and evil has to break down. On what basis can you say that something is evil or good? And, in the, um, and you can see this in the uh, yin-yang symbol that is, we see more and more of, and that's the out of... Um, Buddhism, where you have the one circle with an S-type line through it, and one side is usually shaded dark, and the other is white. 
And see, this one indicates the so-called evil and the other the so-called good, but they are all included in the one. And so that ultimate, the ultimate unity of the universe includes both good and evil, and there's ultimately no distinction between the two. And they can't, they have no basis anymore intellectually to define that which is good or that which is evil, because that implies a value judgment. And from whose value are you going to use to define what's good and what's evil? Your, your opinion? Well, what about somebody else's opinion? What about the opinion of the Marquis de Sade? He had a different view of good and evil. Who is it that's going to determine what that ultimate value is as to what's good and what's evil? So if these passages do not inform us as to the origin of evil in the universe, then we're left hanging. And the Bible claims to give us all the information we need for life and godliness. And this is a vital, crucial, important question. And for God to leave us without any information regarding this would not fit with the claim, the biblical claim, of its own sufficiency. So there must be an explanation in the Scripture as to the origin of evil. Now, there are eight major difficulties with identifying the figures in Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28 with a human or a mythological figure. So let's get these down. Eight problems with identifying these figures with either a human or a mythological figure. First of all, point number one, a methodology which identifies the uh, uh, Halal ben Shahar or the, uh, or the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28 with, with uh, some sort of ancient Canaanite or Phoenician myth or whether they just think it represents some idealized but a non-historical man, is incompatible with a view of divine inspiration, inerrancy, and the infallibility of Scripture. It's incompatible. If it's based on some ancient pagan myth, then, then man's just telling his own opinion, and it's not God revealing truth. So that's the argument of the, of the liberals, and I just wanted to get that out of the way to start with, that if this is based on some Canaanite myth, then it's not based on divine revelation, and it's incompatible with the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. Furthermore, just a side note on that same point, no pagan myth has ever been discovered that could possibly provide such a basis. I mean, the liberals say, well, they got it from some ancient Canaanite myth, but in all of archaeological research... There has never been any myth that even comes close to being able to provide a basis for that. See, the liberal agenda is to destroy the credibility of Scripture. It doesn't matter whether their position is credible or not. They just want to assault, 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 and try to tear it down. So that, that does away with the liberal position. It just You can't say it's based on any kind of ancient myth because uh, that is an argument that is completely incompatible with the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. Point number two. Point number two. What is said in both passages about these figures goes far beyond the abilities of any mortal human being. The descriptions in these passages are such that they can't be fulfilled by any normal mortal human being. Now, the answer to that well, the answer you may run into from that is somebody will say, well, it's just figurative. It's just, you know, the Bible's just so full of metaphor and figures of speech, and we have to interpret, this is just allegory. 
Well, in order to make a claim of allegory or metaphor, you have to be able to go in and show where these terms like the anointed cherub in Ezekiel 28, that that term cherub is ever used metaphorically in Scripture. And it's not. There's not one evidence that cherub is ever used, even in rabbinic literature, as a figure of speech. It always refers to a literal cherub, a literal angel. So often these claims are made, and there absolutely has no support for such claims. So what is said about these passages goes far beyond the normal abilities of a human being. Third, Ezekiel. The Ezekiel passage addresses a lament to two individuals. The Ezekiel passages address, uh, Ezekiel 28, addresses a lament to two individuals. The first 13 verses are addressed to the prince of Tyre. The prince of Tyre. The second half of the chapter is addressed to the king of Tyre. Those are two distinct individuals, and the Hebrew uses two distinct words to refer to those individuals. And we'll look at that when we get into the detailed exegesis of these two two passages. But starting in in, uh, Ezekiel 28, excuse me, 1 through 10, is the prince of Tyre, and in verse 11, he's told to take up a lament for the king of Tyre. The prince is viewed as a human who wants to be like God. But in contrast, beginning in verse 11, the king the king is a heavenly being. He's called the anointed cherub. And the covering cherub, in verse 16, is a heavenly being who's ejected from heaven. See the difference? The prince is a human who wants to be in heaven, wants to be a god. And the second one, the king, is a heavenly being who's kicked out of heaven. Now, the interesting thing is that at the time that Ezekiel wrote, the god of Tyre, because it's a lament against Tyre, the god of Tyre was Malkart, and Malkart means the king of the city. And so that would be equivalent to the the prince, or the king of verses 11 to 19. But, But the Old Testament makes it clear that these idolatrous gods, Malkart and all of the others, are just human figments of human imagination and are the creation of the demons that empower them. Remember, demons lie behind all the ancient myths, according to Deuteronomy 32, 16, and 17. So that means that if this is addressing Malkart, who's an idol, that there's a demon behind that idol, the king of the city. So therefore, Ezekiel 28 must be addressing the demonic power behind the human leader of Tyre, and that would be Satan, the leader of the demons. It's, it's an important argument. The king of the city was Malkart, who's, a, who's an idol, but that idol represents a demon, and so it's an address to the demonic power lying behind the human power. Fourth point is that in the New Testament, Paul identifies Satan's sin as pride in 1 Timothy 3, verses 6 and 7. Now, aside from the fact that God could have revealed that to Paul in, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul seems to indicate that this is common knowledge, uh, and the only places where he could have gotten that in the Scriptures that had been revealed up to that point would be from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. 
I mean, unless God just reveals it to him then. But in 1 Timothy, he says, All Scripture, speaking of the Old Testament, is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So point number four is Paul would not have known from any other biblical source other than these two passages that Satan had a sin of pride. 1 Timothy 3, 6, and 7. Fifth, the descriptions, though grand, could not apply to a human king, and there's no indication that these are figures of speech or metaphor. There's no indication that these ever refer to a human king in the context. So, no human king fits this. Sixth, let's get an example. No human king was ever said to be, quote, blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Ezekiel 28.15 says that this anointed cherub was blameless in your ways from the day you were created. That, cannot apply, that couldn't apply to the king of Tyre. It couldn't apply to Hiram II, uh, who was at that time uh, the ruler of Tyre. It couldn't apply to Nebuchadnezzar in, Ezekiel chapter, I mean in Isaiah chapter 14. There is no way that the Scriptures could apply that term, even metaphorically. There's no indication that blameless in your ways is ever used as just a metaphor for being basically good. You would have to be able to prove that, and you can't do it. So the sixth point is no human king could be said to be blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Um, Seventh point, building on that, notice it says, in the day you were created. The guardian cherub is said to have been created bara from God. When it says, from the day you're created, it's not Asa, which is made, or Yatser. And bara is an immediate creation verb. Only God can bara. Only God can bara. Human beings never are the subject of that verb. Only God is. So that indicates a direct creation by God, not an indirect creation. A human being would be indirectly created through the process of normal procreation, and bara would not be used there because only the human body, the human body is asad, and only the soul is bara directly by God. So you could not use this verb in relationship to a human being. That is our seventh point. So obviously on that basis, aside from other things we'll point out looking at the text, that this cannot have occurred, this passage cannot refer to a human being. Now let's look at Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28 tells us about the fall of this anointed cherub. Just by way of contrast, now that we're in Ezekiel 28, look at verse 1. The word of Yahweh came to me again, saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre. You ought to underline that word. A prince is not as authoritative as a king. Then we look at verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. There is a distinction. These are different personages. That has to be taken into account. And notice what the Lord says. You were the seal of... Of perfection. Now, point number one that we ought to note here is that this is in poetry. That means that poetry can make use of figurative language. It can make use of simile and metaphor and a number of other figures for, uh, in order to emphasize points, in order to heighten the drama and to paint the picture. But in doing so, those 
metaphors have literal meaning. A metaphor is not just some allegorical thing that can mean just anything. And in order to, in order to, to demonstrate that any statement is used metaphorically, you have to be able to demonstrate how the metaphor functions and that that phraseology is used metaphorically elsewhere. It's like any idiom. An idiom is like saying, go jump in the lake. You don't mean to go literally jump over there and aim a lake. You mean just to go away. But, see, in order to prove that, if you found that statement, go jump in the lake in a context, you, would have to, you could say that, for example, if it's talking about kids at summer camp, the context would indicate that it was talking about something literal. If it was somewhere else, it would indicate that it was figurative. So you have to look at the context to determine these things. Well, in Deuteronomy 28, I mean, in Ezekiel 28, uh, 12b, it says, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. And see, what you're doing is you're piling up adjectival descriptions of this creature. It's not just one thing, but each one builds on the other to build a total picture of his of his perfection, of his glory, of all of his attributes. The seal of perfection means that he is the... He is the ultimate in perfection. He becomes the standard, just as uh, if, if we come down here and we decide we're going to, to measure the uh, front of the church in order to build a, a, a podium, then we get out a ruler, and that ruler is marked into yards, feet, and inches. Now, the reason we can say that that ruler has, that is an accurate measure is only because down in... Um, in Washington, of the Bureau of Weights and Standards, there is an accurate ruler with uh, yards and inches marked out on it. And to the degree that our yardstick or our measuring tape is, fits that one in Washington, to that degree it's accurate. The one in Washington is the ultimate standard. And that's what seal of perfection means. It relates to the ultimate standard. Of, of his perfection, so that he is the standard of God. No creature that God had created is as perfect as this creature. He is full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. This indicates that he is, that no creature has more knowledge or wisdom than this creature, and his physical attractiveness goes far beyond anything we could ever imagine. He's the most incredible creature to ever come from the hand of God. And then verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, that is a, a statement that cannot be said of any single human being. And the only way you can get around that is to try to say that this is some sort of metaphor. But then you would have to demonstrate that somewhere else this is used metaphorically or symbolically. That Eden is used as just some, some uh, 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 metaphor or symbol for some sort of perfect environment. But you can't do that. Everywhere Eden is used, it refers to... The abode of God, specifically on the earth, and if we were to take the time to go back to Genesis chapter 2, we would see that there is Eden on the earth at that time, and that refers to the abode of God, and then God planted a garden east of it. So the indication is that Eden is a term that is used to refer to the abode of God, not just at the abode where Adam and Eve were created, but also, but is a term that refers to God's God's presence. So it states, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't in Eden. Hiram, 
The second, the uh, king of Tyre was not in Eden. No human being was ever in Eden. It says, then, every precious stone was your covering. Now, none of this could be said to have ever applied to any of the, any of the human kings. And if you read through the list, you have uh, nine listed. The sardius, topaz, and diamond. Beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald. And they're set in gold. And these, if you're a Jew and you're reading this, what, what would come to your mind? The breastplate of the high priest. Because of these, these, are, these nine stones are among the twelve that were on the breastplate of the high priest of Israel. So the thing that comes to your mind would be the high priest. So the writer is using images here. See how I did that? You can go through and list these stones. Go back to passages in in Exodus um, 30 through 40 where the the priesthood's uh, ephod is described, his breastplate. And you can demonstrate that this... These are, there's a similarity there. And the image that the writer wants them to think of, he wants to associate this creature's and his function with that of the high priest of Israel. It says, the workmanship of your timbrels and your pipes. That is, that he had uh, music is associated. These are musical instruments associated with him. And the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you in the, on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. None of that can be said of a human figure. You walked back and forth in the presence of the fiery stones. This indicates, um, for example, Isaiah 6.3 talks about how, or 6.5 talks about how the seraph flew and picked up a burning coal and put it on the lips of Isaiah to purify his lips. Well, where did that come from? These are the fiery stones. So apparently there is there is this fire, fiery stones in the throne room of God. So the entire picture here is in the presence of God in an environment that is not earthly. And then verse 15, You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until sin was discovered in you. So he's perfect, and then there is sin. You can't say that about any human figure. It's clear that from the text that this is talking about a creature that is perfect until sin is discovered. Verse 16 by the, gives us a suggestion. Verse 16 gives us a suggestion of how this took place. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Now, apparently, the picture here is Tyre was a maritime community that, that was a seaport, and there was trade from all over the world that came either by land to Tyre and then left by sea or came by sea, and trading and commerce took place there. And so the writer is using this image of commerce and is applying it to the role of this cherub as a high priest, indicating that as the, as the cherub trafficked, as it were, in the praises of the creatures to the Creator, that somehow he lusted for that praise for himself. As he is there bringing the, the honor and the worship and the glory and leading the, the congregation of the angels in worship of God, he begins to want that for himself. And so that becomes the source of his internal arrogance. And as that's discovered, he's cast as a common thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst 
of the fiery stones. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up. That is, your thinking, your arrogance was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Now, Ezekiel 28 gives us a lot of that information uh, all surrounding the sin, but the sin itself is contained and described for us in Isaiah chapter 14. And we'll close here. This is taken up as... Uh, a lament to the king of Babylon. But once again, it is the power behind the throne because I believe these events transcend any Babylonian monarch. Certainly, it can't be uh, Nebuchadnezzar unless it's prophetic because Isaiah wrote some 200 years before Nebuchadnezzar. And here we read, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. Notice the same terminology. He's cut to the ground just as in Ezekiel the king of Tyre is thrown to the ground. You who weaken the nations. For you have said, in other words, first he's thrown to the ground, but prior to that, before he's thrown to the ground, he says something in his heart. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. So these five I will statements, that I will ascend into the heavens, that is the the, um, heaven of heavens, the third heaven, the throne room of God. Second point, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Stars of God is used to refer to the angels in many passages. We saw that in Ezekiel, excuse me, in Job 30. Uh, 37 earlier where they're referred to as the stars of heaven sang for joy. The stars is used metaphorically to refer in that passage and others of the angels. So this individual wants to rule the angels. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. That is again a symbol of rulership over the assembly of the angels. On the And then verse 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Clouds again is used in several passages to refer to the myriads of angels. And then finally, I will be like the Most High. And yet the the punishment is listed in verse 15. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. So it's in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, we have the picture of the arrogance of this creature who we now call Satan and his fall. So when we come back next time, we will go on to, describe, to look at the uh, trial of Satan and the consequence of his, of his fall and how that impacts human history with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to look at your word, to discover that, that you are indeed in control of evil. And even though as we look around us there is much evil, there is much injustice, there is much insanity, and there is much calamity in human history, yet we know that you have allowed this so that the creature has the freedom to choose you or to choose against you. And that if you were to stop evil, you would cease the function of volition. And so if you allowed it for a time, it's a temporary matter, but eventually you will judge all evil and restrict all evil to a place of eternal condemnation. Only in the Scriptures, only the truth gives us an accurate understanding of the role and place of, of sin and suffering in the universe. Now, Father, we pray that, that as we know that you have taken care of this and it was the condemnation for sin was paid for on the cross, 
that there is salvation is in no one else other than in the one who paid the penalty as a substitute for our sins. And therefore, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is without faith, who is uncertain of their eternal destiny or uncertain of, of their salvation, that they would take this time to make that sure and certain. All you have to do right where you sit is put your faith alone in Christ alone. The scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we thank you for what we have studied today. We pray that it would encourage us and strengthen us in our understanding of your word and your power and that you might receive all the glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.